Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Notable. Uh, hello, welcome to Notable. I'm Elizabeth Holker. I'm Stuart McConey. Uh, this is episode three of our second series of the podcast that brings you, we hope, fascinating and enlightening and unusual stories from the worlds of music, all music. All music. Everything mm. from medieval magicals to death punk. Thought you were going to say everything from medieval magicals to renaissance magicals if it's magicals <laughs> we do it no everything everything from free jazz to serialism to punk rock yep. to in the case of today's show a pioneering female electronic musician and what was voted in 1977 the world's greatest nightclub uh and it was in wigan i know the magic of wigan exactly so maybe we should begin there, should we? Maybe we should begin in my hometown of Wigan because here's an interesting thing, Elizabeth. I literally owe my existence to Wigan Casino. Really? L- literally owe my existence to Wigan Casino. Wow. As do, as do generations, I think, of other people from the town of Wigan because Wigan Casino began life as a club I'm going to assume that you maybe know that Wigan Casino became associated with a genre called Northern Soul. I do More know of that this. in a moment. Yeah. More of that in a moment. It began life as the Empress Ballroom. It was yeah. a huge ballroom in Wigan that held about 1,200 people. It had been um, welcoming Wiganers there to, you know, to dance the night away since the 1940s. Wow. Uh, in fact, it had been around since the time of the First World War. But it would become through the 40s, it established a reputation as being a big dance hall. And my mum and dad met at the Empress Ballroom. <laughs> or, or the or the Emp. Wow. It's called to generations of Wigginers. Okay. Did then you know Marquis Smith's mum and dad met at the Ritz? There you go. In what feels like quite a, a parallel story. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You should make that comparison between the Ritz in Manchester and Wigan Casino because they are very similar places. They are mm. very similar places. They were they were big ballrooms probably built after the First World War that came into the heyday during the 40s and 50s. If you've seen that, if you've seen that scene at the Ritz in A Taste of Honey in Manchester, that's what Wigan Casino looked like. There's not much existing footage of Wigan Casino, but we'll return to that in a moment when we do our notable exception. But yes, it had a, a balcony circle and a dance floor on three sides, so you could have a perfect view of the dancers underneath. It had a smaller room off to one side that became Mr M's, more of that in a moment. Yep. The only lighting were two ultraviolet tubes that hung from the ceiling on chains. But in the late 1960s, I guess, uh, a, a genre of music had become very popular in the north of England that became known as Northern Soul. Now, the man who gave it this description, yep. the man who coined that phrase, was a guy called Dave Godin, a legendary soul journalist, something of a purist, really. He had a record shop in London. 
And he coined the term to distinguish the sound of the soul music that people from the north of England liked compared to people down south. He said, I'd noticed that northern football fans would come into my Soul City record shop in Covent Garden and they weren't interested in the latest developments in the black American chart. He said they basically were interested in the Motown-sounding, kind of pulsating, danceable tunes from the mid-1960s. As to be said, Godin was slightly, I think, sneering about them. And a lot of people since have been slightly sneering about Northern Soul because it is a driving beat. It's a very urgent working class music. And I think other people think that that sound that became that became characteristic of Wing Casino, they get a little bit sniffy about them. But anyway, what became classed as Northern Soul, the Northern Soul you would hear at Wing Casino in its heyday, was the fact that it was dri- driving beats, strings, tuned percussion, very melodic. The nearest comparison, really, to say is if you love or you know the, the sort of sound you'd get on Motown in the mid-1960s, that is the beat and the sound and the heart and the feel of Northern Soul or certainly the brand of Northern Soul that became associated with, with Wigan Casino because each one of the nightclubs yep. had its own distinctive sound. So purists might say, oh, we preferred Blackpill Mecca's Highland Room because that was gentler and it was funkier, or or Cleethorpes. But what happens really, just to backtrack a little, you get these clubs knocking around in the north, the Twisted Wheel in Manchester being the most famous, coming out of the modern R&B scenes. It's the sort of place where you could go and hear... Rod Stewart in his early R&B days, or the Spencer Davis group, or Georgie Fame and the Blue Flips, and danced to this new kind of hybrid music, the Golden Torch in Stoke. These places start to attract a cult following for this particular kind of music. Then they both closed down in 1973, or slightly earlier in the case of the Twisted Wheel. And a guy from Wigan called Russ Winstonley, who's got into this music, he thinks, I'd like to start my own club in Wigan. I bet we could get a few people here. He goes to a guy called Mike Walker. Mike Walker had been brought to Wigan from Carlisle by the ABC Entertainment's chain for the Be- for the Beatles' visit to Wigan in 1964, and he never left. Mike Walker is a kind of entertainment guru around Wigan. Russ Winston Lee Gomson says, can we rent out the Empress Ballroom or the Wigan Casino, as it's called? Now, we should say it was never a casino. It was just a glamorous name. There's never any gambling went on there. Is that the reason it was called the Wigan Casino? Just just because of the glamorous associations with casinos? Simply because of that. You wouldn't get James Bond in there. There were no croupiers. There was no Rihanna Vaplu or anything like that. It was just because it sounds glamorous. And he said in 1973... Uh, Russell Winston there, who'd got a local reputation as a DJ around around Wigan in the pubs and clubs. He says, let's put on a late night sort of disco, which is quite unusual. September 23rd, 1973, two o'clock in the morning started. And from that small beginnings, it quickly, really quickly starts to attract people for all kinds of reasons. It played this kind of music people love, this driving beat and dancing tunes. The, the, the start time went back a little early. It started to go back to midnight. And the characteristics associated with it that people might know about now, all the legendary stuff about Wigan Casino, there was no alcohol. So people drank bottles of milk. There were crates of milk there and you got water out the taps. No alcohol. There were quite a lot of drugs. People took quite a lot of uppers to keep themselves awake so they could dance all night. Every night again, people have tried sometimes quite poorly to make Northern Soul films. There's a great one called Northern Soul, but there's a couple of really quite bad ones. And in one called Soul Boy, there's a scene on the dance floor when someone's supposed to have taken drugs at the Wigan Casino and they're basically having an hallucination. They've taken acid. That never 
happened. You did. No one did that kind of thing. No. The, that was a hippie drug, wasn't it? Exactly. The drugs that were they being, were amphetamines, weren't they? The drugs that were being taken were basically variants of amphetamines, benzodrine, amphetamine, things that would keep you alert and awake so you could dance. You did not want to not be aware of what you were doing. You wanted to be absolutely aware of what you were doing and able to dance. It's what made Mingan Casino obviously visited by the drug squad many, many years down the many, many times down the years, and made it something of an embarrassment to the authorities in Wigan, which, again, some people think added to its demise. And traditions soon emerged like the three before eight. The last three records were played uh, every night, well, well, every Saturday into Sunday morning. Jimmy Radcliffe's Long After Tonight is All Over, Time Will Pass You By by Toby Legend, and I'm On My Way by Dean Parrish, which are amazing records and goose pimpling to Northern Soul fans, if you hear them still now. I'm not going to list what are Northern Soul records because you can go and find those out. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of Northern Soul compilations. The records themselves used to be really expensive. I used to go into Russ and Richard's record shop in Wigan, Russ Winston and the brilliant Richard Serling, who still has a Northern Soul show on Radio Manchester, which you should listen to. He, these two had a record shop in Wigan that was the ultra coolest record shop in the world. If you think, you know, championship vinyl in high fidelity, where you get sneered at, oh, you, if you asked for the wrong version of the Northern Soul record, you'd be laughed out at the shop. But I used to spend my Saturday afternoons <laughs> in there. But their singles would be £9, £10, 15 quid for these import singles. Didn't some of the DJs pay up to like £170 for singles? Some of the DJs oh. paid up to that much oh. for just these one-offs because they, they had the, you know, the catalogue number was an original or, or the first pressing or whatever Legendarily, it was. Do I Love You by Frank Wilson, uh, the, the original pressing of that... I think the last time it came into, into the market, £20,000. Wow, okay. <laughs> wow. The records that were emblematic of Northern Soul at Wigan Casino were not contemporary records. In fact, contemporary records from the 70s were, were sort of thought of as not having proved their worth, if you like. Obscurities were valued. Often these records were B-sides or they were flops. They were usually from, usually from the mid-1960s. And what you would get is that when... When they were lured over in the 70s, these artists, to perform live at Wigan Casino, someone like Sandy Sheldon, who made the brilliant You're Gonna Make Me Love You, 1966 on OK Records, she had made that record, it had flopped, and she'd gone on to become a, you know, a hairdresser, a, a, a secretary, whatever, was lured back to Wigan Casino to sing that song again and was, frankly, baffled. She said, like, how, what, why, you know, to find a thousand people singing along to every word and dancing to this track that was just a moment of her life in 1966. Yeah. So that kind of thing happened. And also another thing that was idiosyncratic to the scene, covering up records. So when a DJ found a record that was particularly brilliant, when he had a sound, and it would normally be him, Sandy, when he would play a track that people absolutely loved, he would cover it up. He would literally cover up the name of the artist with a bit of sticking plaster and invent another title so that other people would put off the scent and couldn't track it down because you would then go and, Find, you would go and see that particular DJ because it was the only way you could hear that tune because no one knew what it was. So that's why a lot of the great Northern Soul records have two names. Really? So uh, Festival Time by the Sam Remo, Sam Remo Strings is also Double Cooking by the Checkerboard Squares. And, and, there's, and there are 10, 20 more occasions like that I could name where they've got two different titles because they were covered up. But now what the interesting thing is, if you're just like me, interested in the music, if you're not fetishistic about collecting, you're just interested in the music, 
you would you can buy now in a garage forecourt or a service station on the M6, you can buy an old and sold compilation for five quid that would have cost you those records the price, I think, of a house back in 1973. But if you're just interested in the music, and it's all there on Spotify as well. So that's why I'm not going to give you a list now, a homework list. Just find Wigan Casino and Old and Sold Classics and you'll get loads of lists on Spotify about what kind of music was played. For, for eight years, this all-nighter runs. It spawned a record label called Casino Classics. It went overground and actually spawned hits, proper pop hits like Footsie by Wigan's Chosen Few and Skiing in the Snow by Wigan's Ovation. The Pie Disco Demand label got records in the charts like Goodbye, Nothing to Say by Nosmo King and the Javels and Wayne Gibson's Under My Thumb. This Suddenly, this underground movement starts to go slightly overground to the, to the chagrin of the purists who do not want it to go overground. They want it to stay culty. And I think another reason why Wigan Casino became more popular than any other club on the non-soul scene, and we like to bring a bit of social history and geography and stuff like that into our notable, is it's just where Wigan is, is ideally suited. It's on two, it's got two stations. It's on the West Coast main line. It's also on the main line that runs from Liverpool to Yorkshire. So it was really easy to get to if you lived in Glasgow or if you lived in London, if you lived in Wolverhampton, if you lived in Carlisle, if you lived in Liverpool, if you lived in Manchester. It's a really easy place to get to, Wigan. And I can remember as a kid being in Wigan on a Sunday morning. God knows why, but if you were in Wigan on a Sunday morning, the baths, Wigan baths at nine o'clock would be full of these kids in their baggy pants and their bags, you know, the festoon with badges, having a wash and a swim before they went back, having been up all night on their coaches and cars and trains and buses to, you know, everywhere. Well, that's it, because people came from all over. I, I watched some footage, which I know we are going to talk about online. Yeah. And and the interviews with the DJs they were and the, and the owners of the club, and they were saying the percentage breakdown, actually, most people were coming outside oh, yeah. at its peak, weren't they, to visit? They were coming from outside Wigan. Absolutely. So Wigan would be full on a Saturday night and a Sunday morning of Glaswegians, of Aberdonians, of Dundonians, of people from Guildford and Worthing and London and Berkshire and Wolves and Dudley and all over Britain coming for this music. It's a real pilgrimage. It was a real, and it's fair to say, never any trouble. I know people always say that about places. Oh, it was never any trouble. And, and there usually is. But there never was at Wigan, really. Uh, I mean, because people would came there with the zeal, absolute zeal of the, of the purists to listen to this music, which is the only place you could hear it and you could dance to it all night. The traditions that occurred, and anyone who's ever DJed at Northern Soul Venues, I have, you would know that people clap in all the right places. So you'll search in certain records at certain times, like Tainted Love or I'm Going to Find Me Somebody by um, The Velvet. People will clap, and it sounds like a gunshot going off across the room. It's a goose pimpling moment. Play the right record at the right time. Five, six, seven hundred, a thousand people on the dance floor will turn and applaud you. <laughs> which is an amazing feeling for someone playing records behind a deck. They will turn and applaud you. Play the wrong record at the wrong time and the floor will clear. And as Richard Serling said, there is nothing like seeing the light bouncing off the polished wooden dance floor of the Wing Casino as everyone leaves and the dance floor clears. And that's, do you never want that to happen? How did those dance moves develop? Because they are so particular, yeah. aren't they? You just don't, you never see anything like it before or since. You know, like, I. it's so strange. And so athletic. 
<laughs> it is. And I think there might be a little bit of machismo in there because it seems unthinkable not to say this is weird, but after the rave scene and the Manchester scene, but Northern Soul was quite unusual at the time in that lads would dance on their own, not with a girl, but on their own. And I think immediately when you get blokes doing anything, they have to bring some competitive edge into it, don't they? <laughs> so I think they felt they'd got to start doing something acrobatic to show off. That's just my theory. But some of the dancing is amazing. It is, yeah, really yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, it lasts for eight years. Towards the end, it starts to play records that the purists again would grumble at, like they would co-opt any record that had the right beat. It didn't matter if it was black music. It didn't matter if it was American, which the purists said it had to be. So you got things like the theme from Joe 90 being a hit at Wigan Casino or a Tony Blackburn record. As long as it had the right beat, it were, it was deemed okay. And that irked the purists, as uh, Mark E. Smith would say. And shall we say it closes down and burns down in mysterious circumstances in 1983. Wiggins Council was embarrassed about the casino for years. It used to really annoy me that you will put up, you know, towns will put up a, a statue of any Tory grandee, but their own culture, their own working class culture, they seem to ignore. Belatedly, they've got on board. If you now go to the shopping centre in Wigan, the Grand Arcade in Wigan, there's a casino cafe that's full of memorabilia and stuff like that. So you can go and stand in front of a blue plaque and get your picture taken with some you know, old record sleeves and stuff like that. But some of us still believe that the circumstances when it mysteriously burnt down in 1983 are, well, murky. Oh, really? To say the least. Right, it had okay. to be close. But if you want, there's a fantastic book. Um, there's a, there's a, there are brilliant books um, about Wigan Casino. Russ Winstonley co-authored a book about Wigan Casino. There are any number of compilations, any number of lists on Spotify. So, it, And I still think, personally, some of those Wigan Casino non soul records are the most effervescent, intoxicating with pop music you will ever hear. I very rarely play Northern Soul to people and they go, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> Usually they go, what is this? It's amazing, you know. Why did it inspire that kind of devotion? I remember I went to the Twisted Wheel shortly before it closed down. Right. And um, I spoke to this guy there called Pete Roberts, who was a DJ and yeah. was part of the campaign to try and keep it open. But he was... Oh, it, it was like a religion for him like and for the people that I spoke to there. He actually had buried the ashes of one of his friends who'd also been a DJ in the dance floor. In the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. like it was, yeah. it was just has this devotion. And I think, you know, I, to spend that much money, you're, we're talking, the, like we say, these are like working class people, aren't they? But spending that kind of money on records. I, I meet people all the time who tell me that I've got a brick from Wigan Casino or I've got a bit of the dance floor Wigan Casino in my, you know. And I think it is, again, slightly because of its roots in working class culture. The people who went to Wigan Casino are people who worked hard in hard manual jobs usually all week. We're not to really, it wasn't a studenty thing. It wasn't an act, it wasn't that kind of scene at all. It wasn't one cultured by the, you know, through the music press or through the hipper echelons. It was manual workers, it was factory workers, it was young people. It was I think the classic drew it from. The music was such a release and an escape that Saturday night in Wigan, you worked hard all week and you dreamt of Saturday night and you were going to get off your face with your mates and dance to the music you loved. And the music is so joyful and it's so rooted in, I think it's not too ridiculous to say, it also it chimes with the black American experience as well. I think the two cultures have a lot in common. So I think that we're talking about two oppressed is putting it too strong. I wouldn't dream of saying that about factory workers in the North of England 70s, but you know what I mean. They're talking about two people who knew hard times who knew the struggles of life. And I think they felt a kinship. Therapy on the dance floor. And I think well, there's a real kinship. And you can absolutely hear how those records, those emotional records of heartbreak and hard work, sung by 
uh, black people in America in the 1960s chimed with working class people in Wigan in the 70s. And I think it did become a release and it almost became a religious thing to, to be that. Someone once sent me a cassette of just the atmosphere of an all-nighter in 1973. <laughs> not, not, you can just barely hear the music, but what you can hear is the chatter and the hubbub. He sent it me because he, you know, he, he felt it almost a religious significance. Also, I was like surprised to hear that they were these that that was allowed. You know, that kids were just staying out all night. <laughs> I, I don't know if that makes me a prude, but um, or you know, like that's quite naive. Just I don't know. I I just don't think of that of that generation. I, or I never went to an all nighter because I was too young. My mum and dad wouldn't have let me at thirteen or whatever or twelve to have stayed out an all nighter. But very being very canny. We can see, you know, them put on what they called the early sessions. Yeah. Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays that would be from sort of six o'clock till 10 o'clock and no alcohol was served. Oh, actually, was it? But basically it was so that they could get 16-year-olds in. And I was 13 and I used to fake my birth date with the formidable Hilda Woods, who everyone remembers Hilda Woods, Mrs. the lady Mrs. Woods, door. yeah. Mrs. Woods, the lady on the door. She was hilarious because people used to try and sneak past her, didn't she? That was the only bit where you would see argy-bargy was at the doorway because everyone, right. people would just be pushing to get in, wouldn't they? That's right, yeah. And then some of the kids might try and get past her on the door. She'd say, well, when's your date of birth? And I'd say, it's the 14th of the 4th, 1860, uh, no, um, uh, <laughs> 19th of the 12th, 1480. Um, no, and then she'd then sometimes she'd go, oh, come in. And later in life, when I, we started to work on the radio and stuff, I met Hildewood several times as when she was an older lady, much older lady. And I would say to her, you do not realise the fear you would strike in me. And it was so weird to think that this very normal, older Wigan lady was the gatekeeper of what was voted in 1977 <laughs> the greatest nightclub in the world, beating uh, Studio 54 into second place. Wow. Which I think is amazing. Anyway. Yeah, go and check the music story. out. It's extraordinary. Mm. But I, 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 is that Stuart? Is that why when we were at the Ritz that time, you nearly got thrown out twice because it was just bringing um, back all those memories of being in a yeah, similar place? It, we went to see um, Nile Rogers. <laughs> we went to see Sheik. Yeah, and he brought Johnny Marr on at the end, and Stuart yeah. was j- dancing on the sofas. Yeah, the bouncer told him not once; he had to tell him twice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to jump over the balcony. I know. I did feel like throwing myself off the balcony. I thought this must be what Beatlemania felt like. I was so excited. And the bouncer said, if you get up on that balcony against that dancing, we're going to throw you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right. Um, no, yes, that probably was it. That, that, there's the feeling of being in a dance hall like that. But if you want to see any of Wigan Casino... There's only one bit of footage, and it's the footage that Elizabeth's seen you mm. can get. And this is our notable exception for this pod. Yeah, There is a 
documentary, a rather weird documentary by the fated music documentary maker Tony Palmer. There's a rather strange half-hour documentary, I think it's called This England, to give it its proper title, that he made for Granada in 1977, which is a very curious hybrid of Wigan's industrial history, usual stuff, smoky yeah. factory chimneys, kids in the street, in the back streets, with footage of the dancers at Wigan Casino. As far as I know, that is the only time cameras were ever allowed inside Wigan Casino, and it's the only visual footage that exists. And I remember once going to see St Etienne, uh, on tour and they used it as a backdrop that oh footage, wow yeah. okay yeah. it is i mean only... the dancers are they that is where you see the most extraordinary dancing in that footage Absolutely. yeah it is yeah. incredible and mrs woods she's interviewed as well isn't she in the... she is incredible music i would say i you know no if, if you don't know anything about northern soul i hope we told you a little bit about wigan casino and go and find out go and check out the music i i feel certain you will love it What are you going to tell me about, Elizabeth? Well, I'm going to tell you about Daphne Oram. If people don't know her name, I'm sure they will know the Radiophonic Workshop, which she was, um, well, she was a founder. Mm. Radiophonic Workshop, uh, they composed and created soundtracks for lots of famous 50s and 60s BBC programmes, the most famous of which is the beginning of the Doctor Who theme, the spacey kind of woo sounds, yeah. uh, which is actually the work of Delia Derbyshire, who you might say stole some of, not intentionally, but, through time, has stolen yeah. some of Daphne Oram's thunder, f- partly because she was so instrumental in the creation of that soundtrack. Uh, but really, Oram was the real trailblazer. Mm. Uh, so this is a story of Daphne Oram, but really about the development of electronic music in this in this country, and continuing some of the themes that we touched on in previous episodes. So I just want to sort of bring in the Second World War here as a bit of a <laughs> yeah. key influence on what was going on at that time. In two ways. So we mentioned in the episode about Pierre Henri and, and the Liverpool Maths, uh, and in the episode about Leon Theremin as well, that both World War- Wars, in fact, played quite a big role in the acceleration of radio technology. Mm. So this was for um, br- the broadcast of propaganda at home, but also for communications on the battlefields. So suddenly this technology was just like developing at such a speed and quite sophisticated by the end of the Second World War, So they had these studios, they had this technology. But then the other kind of side to this is that while men were away fighting during the Second World War, the people who were left to kind of operate this technology were women. So you ended up with this situation where women had this access now to this technology, whereas Mm. perhaps they wouldn't have done in the past. And these jobs became available to them as operators, as, as assistants and producers in radio studios, that they might not have got those jobs previously. Yeah. And this is what we see with Daphne Oram. So um, just to kind of backtrack a bit, she was a a classically trained musician. She was actually offered a place to study at the Royal College of Music in 1942. She was, but she went to work for the Beeb instead, didn't she? She did. She turned it down because she was offered a position as a junior studio engineer at the BBC. One of her responsibilities at the time was to shadow live concerts with pre-recorded versions of those concerts on a turntable. So that if the live concert was interrupted by enemy action, by Blitz, essentially, in London, that listeners at home wouldn't know because that, of course, would have been quite bad for morale. So she would have kind of segued into the turntable recording Hey, you modern DJ, you modern DJs think beat beat matching is difficult. (laughs) How difficult is that? Splicing those, anyway. (laughs) Exactly. 
So yeah, she went to work for the BBC, but this was really just an excuse for her to have access to this radio technology. She'd shown quite yeah. a, a keen interest in it from, a, from an early age. And suddenly this was all available to her, this state-of-the-art equipment at the BBC, so ahead of its time. And as we've mentioned in the episode about Pierre Henri, this kind of practice of messing with tape, of splicing tape, because if you consider before that, if you wrote some music, you had to get a musician to play it. But now what you could do was record a sound onto tape, slow it down, speed it up, reverse it you know play it backwards and you had completely different sounds and this is what these early experimenters these early kind of classically trained but curious minds and pioneers that's what they were doing with tape to create new sounds and she campaigned for the the, within the bbc didn't she she campaigned to get this used more and more didn't she absolutely yeah yeah what i love about this story just as an aside is if you look at pictures of daphne oram she's so prim isn't she she looks like margaret thatcher or like mary whitehouse or somebody she's got these kind of big glasses So, yeah, what she was doing was very kind of innovative. And I think another part of this as well is that this technology, it allowed access for people like Daphne Oram, people who perhaps wouldn't have, you know, she may not have had the opportunity to write for a full orchestra, but here she was in a radio studio, able to play around with sound and make her own music, her own compositions, but without needing kind of that traditional access to uh, orchestras, which was probably only available to men mostly at that time. Yeah, yeah. So here again, we have this kind of open door for women to come in and use this state-of-the-art material and technology and create this really experimental and innovative music. Yeah. So you mentioned she was she campaigned to get this, you know, to get this used more and more at the BBC. She actually went to the RTF studios in Paris. She was sent on mm-hmm. a research trip. That's where Pierre Henri and Pierre Schaffer, who we've spoken about before, that's where they were working. And yeah. this, this again, was a post-war, well, a Second World War and then post-war kind of initiative. So this studio was there during the war and then it was inco- composers were encouraged to go and use this, the, this equipment after the war. Pierre Henri and Pierre Schaffer, as we've mentioned before, went on to, you know, well, now they're known as the godfathers of techno. So mm. what they were doing really has kind of, continued you know the, these sounds they were creating it's really kind of continued into contemporary pop music it's almost kind of transparent to our ears i think you know that kind of collage mm. postmodern sound mm. of sounds being spliced and so as she came back from paris she managed to persuade the bbc to upgrade its facilities they created a studio for this thing the radiophonic workshop which she established with desmond briscoe two of them kind of did this together 1958 yeah yeah 1958 we, we should say that the early output of the radiophonic workshop it, it, although they're using the techniques of music concrete but the early output that she'd be working on was more sound effective wasn't it yeah, like sound effects Foley. for greater mass and the pit and the goon show and things like that absolutely yeah yeah and then they started to actually well she she would do that during the day and then she would stay really late she was kind of known for being really conscientious yeah. so she would work like really late into the hours into the small hours making music outside of of her what her, her day job which like you say was to create the sound effects for radio dramas yeah. she wrote the first Holy electronic score in BBC history. Yeah. That was for yeah. the play... Amphitryon. Amphitryon 38. Amphitryon 38. Amphitryon 38, which, I, which I've never seen, but uh, it's a 1929 play by a French dramatist, Jean Giradoux, but she did the electronic, holy electronic score first, for it. First yeah, one ever, yeah. Yeah, the first one ever. So also famously, she made an electronic score for Samuel Beckett's All That Fall yes. as well. I read a rumour that the BBC... And I don't know if this is true. I read it in The Quietest, which is a reputable 
online magazine. Apparently, the BBC very disreputable came... people behind it. We should say yes. <laughs> uh, any of the guys from the Quieter are listening. John Dora, etc. Anyway. Here we go. Apparently, the BBC was so concerned about the apparent effects that constant exposure to her weird and wonderful sounds were having on its employees that they brought in a rule forbidding anyone from working in her department for longer than six months without taking a break. Right, I can. As if they thought, can you believe that? Yeah, perhaps that they thought these strange sounds were having like a psychedelic effect on their junior employees. I can well believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was because of that sort of attitude towards her. It caused her to quit, and she she only lasted actually a year at the helm of the Radiophonic Workshop. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, Elizabeth, that she manages. Does she convince people that they should go from just using these electronic sounds as sound effects to saying it could be music soundtrack? I mean, she was a musician, so that's how it developed, really. I mean, that, and that's why she was so key in the development of this kind of you know, of these kind of tape experiments that were just used for sound effects in dramas, just background sound, you know, like the crunching of feet on gravel or whatever it was, into into music that's now considered really far ahead of its time and, you know, and was really, Mm. and, and was, you know, became part of, well, intrinsic to pop music as we know it today, these sounds and techniques yeah. and ways of composing that are intrinsic to pop music as we know it today. And that's just because she was a musician, but she was also very conscientious and she would stay really late at night experimenting and writing music and making mm. music out of it. But it wasn't, I think it, it, she wasn't given the recognition that she deserved at the time. So it was only no. later and it was largely thanks to, you know, the Doctor Who soundtrack and, and just how iconic those sound effects that Delia Derbyshire actually developed. But she wouldn't have been able to do that had it not been for Daphne Oram. So whilst the Beatles might cite Delia Derbyshire as an influence, could there have been a Delia Derbyshire without Daphne Oram? Probably not. And, you know, it was Daphne Oram who went to France and she was looking at what Pierre Henri and Pierre Schaffer were doing and what, you know, people like Stockhausen were doing. So she was very much kind of embedded in that world in what, other big players in the classical avant-garde internationally were doing and brought that back to the UK and made it happen at the BBC. So it's, it is quite extraordinary. Mm. She moved to, to Kent and established her own studio there, but carried on making music for uh, soundtracks for adverts. I think that was how she made a lot of her money. Theatre, radio, television. Um, a technical innovator as well, I should mention. She worked on the Oramics machine. Yeah, she had her own thing, Oramics. Yeah, for, yeah. a forerunner to the synthesizer. Yeah. So, um, you know, a really sophisticated piece of kit. So not only was she a kind of a composer, a musician, an experimenter, but she was also a technical innovator and engineer as well. Yeah. So an incredible story. I want to recommend some of her work before we okay. before we wrap it up. She created the effects and the music for the Lego and Tumble Wash washing machine adverts. And wow. they are so worth Lego listening to. Building bridge. Okay. Bill Bridge. Lego builds it. Bill Moontractor. Lego builds it. And again, I love that about that time, like the late 50s, 60s. Just that, I don't know, it, there's just, yeah. there's so many contrasts in the culture at those ti- at that time, isn't there? Yeah. And that on the one hand, you've got this woman, that, like we say, she looks like Margaret Thatcher and probably living quite conservatively, but then artistically that people seem to be so open-minded. I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't there. Well, so it's Flaubert. Flaubert once said, be regular and ordinary in your life like a bourgeois, but you may be violent and original in your work. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. She's Daphne lived kind by of that. proves that, doesn't she? She does, yeah, yeah. yeah, 100%. 
four aspects this is that kind of like rhythmic tape loops it's really spectral it sounds like a modern synth but it's just using tape um birds of parallax so that was music that she made in 72 using sounds from the aramics machine and she also created a really kind of menacing soundtrack for um an eton college production of dr faustus that was in the late 50s. So I yeah. really recommend listening to those because it just gives a real sense of what she was doing and yeah. how kind of far out it was. Yeah. Can I put in a, a bit of a thing? We should, we, she, she provided the electronic sounds for Dr. No. Uncredi- yes, she did. Uncredited. Yes, uncredited. The first Bond movie. Yep. And they used these sounds in all the Bond movies uncredited until 1964. So that's like two or three films. I think Bull Goldfinger is the fourth Bond film, yeah. So, and uh, uncredited, I assume, not unpaid, but uncredited. Mm. And also, do you know the film The Innocent, 1961? A, no, a yep. brilliant British horror film. Go- well, horror is the wrong word. Ghost story. She did the electronic sounds for that as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, an amazing person. Yeah. Um, did I mention Still Points? I don't know if I did. No, but so, I think you should now. Yeah. yeah so Still Point, when we're talking about you know working with orchestras and and also electronic music, she actually merged the two. So she did actually write a piece of music that was for orchestra and electronics. People think it's the first of its kind. So the first ever piece of music that kind of mm-hmm. incorporated electronic sounds with, with an orchestral performance. It was ignored for 70 years. Wow. And then it was finally um, performed at the proms two years ago. Shiva Fesharecki, who is a, a turntablist, she performed it on turntables with, with the orchestra. So yeah, it would have been amazing to see. Daphne sadly passed away in 2003, didn't she? But there are... She did. She was only 77. It's a kind of lasting legacy in that yeah. there was a play about her, wasn't there, called the uh, Daphne Oram's Wonderful World of Sound. And there's, there's an award there, as well, a Daphne Oram Award, award uh, which awards young women who are making experimental electronic music and doing new things with electronic music. So, yeah, so she her, her legacy. Fantastic. That's her legacy, yeah. I suppose. But what an incredible person. Yeah, and the legacy of this programme then should be you go to find, go onto the internet and listen to some Northern Soul and some Daphne Daphne Orem, yeah. Which could not be more different, (laughs) but I like to think that gives you the idea of the scope of this podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm off to do that right now. I'm going to put some chalk down on the floor like they used to at Wings, you know, but then (laughs) then try and dance awkwardly to Daphne Orem's music concrete. Also, the baggy trousers. Was that just a Northern Soul thing? (laughs) Um, or was everybody wearing I imagine, baggy trousers like that? I imagine the, the baggy trousers, the, the big flared trousers. Because they had to be up off the floor, didn't they? They were ankle grazers. I think it was to give you a lot of room to do all those violent gymnastics in, didn't it? To Northern Soul, okay. not to Daphne Orem. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to put some baggy trousers on there. <laughs> um, and we will be back with another notable very soon. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Notable. The podcast. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 